The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. So are you unknowingly harnessing the power of anxiety to drive your success? Well, in today's fast-paced, high-pressure world, it's no secret that anxiety is on the rise. But what if we told you that anxiety could actually be a key to unlocking your true potential? Today, we're diving into the world of what our guest, Maura Ahrens-Mealy, calls anxious achievers and exploring how mental health plays a crucial role in the success of leaders everywhere. We'll be diving into how embracing anxiety can fuel ambition and drive you to new heights, the hidden strengths of anxious leaders, and how they're transforming the way we think about success, strategies for channeling anxiety into productive energy, and maintaining a healthy work-life balance, the power of vulnerability in fostering genuine connections and building stronger teams, and surprising research that links high-functioning anxiety with extraordinary leadership. Joining us today is my friend, Maura Ahrens-Mealy, the host of the top leadership podcast, The Anxious Achiever. And Maura has dedicated her career to helping people rethink the relationship between their mental health and their leadership. In 2010, she founded the award-winning digital consulting firm, Women Online, which has since become a powerhouse in the world of digital campaigning. Maura's impressive career spans across working with political and social leaders, launching digital campaigns for presidential candidates, Malala Yousafzai, the United Nations, the CDC, and many others. She's also the author of the book, The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears into Leadership Superpower. So excited to have Maura on today and to dive into these topics with her. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I am excited to dive in. Uh, So anxiety, certainly something that's been a lot of people's minds recently. And when I say recently, I'm talking about the last couple of months, but also more broadly, 
the last three, three and a half years, it seems like it's become a fabric of the human existence. And certainly for decades and maybe the entirety of like human existence, it's been this thing that people deal with, but it feels like it has become increasingly a part of a growing number of people's day-to-day experience. And it's also almost always framed as a negative, as something to deal with, something to not talk about, uh, not share, because maybe you're the only one, um, or maybe it's a sign of weakness, but there's nothing about it that we want or that we feel like can be in any way, shape, or form alchemized into something that actually would be positive. You have a very different take. And before we dive into your take, your exploration of sort of like the way that anxiety weaves into your life and, and specifically your work is personal. It's super personal. <laughs> I wrote this book. I guess we all write our books for us at some level, right? I mean, I think the thing that that I have come to understand, and I think that any of your listeners who travel with anxiety, maybe even since they were kids, will understand, is that for many of us, anxiety is like oxygen. And sometimes we credit our anxiety with achieving big things with pushing us through, with making us excel and work harder than other people. And sometimes our anxiety really gets us into trouble and it robs us of joy and contentment, right? And just the ability to sit. But it is through the management and work of having anxiety that you can really become the thing that I think is the most prized quality in leaders that we never find, which is self-aware, compassionate, empathetic. And so I see anxiety as a very complicated gift for many of us. And and I say this with someone who um, actually is diagnosed bipolar 2 and, you know, has has had periods of major clinical depression as well as anxiety that, you know, has sent me to the emergency room and prevented me from leaving my bed and and all that stuff. So I, I don't sugarcoat it, but so many of us are walking around with moderate anxiety these days and we can't wish it away. We need to learn to understand it and manage it and sometimes even channel it. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the notion of managing and channeling, but before we get there, um, I wonder about also if so many of us are walking around with anxiety beyond feeling awful um, and beyond potentially being able to harness it in some way, shape or form as an asset, what is the anxiety telling us? (laughs) Because like part of the anxiety, I think is like, it's a physiological response. It's an emotional like response. It's a cognitive response, but in some way, shape, or form, you wonder sometimes whether there's a signal embedded in it also, and whether that signal, if it in fact exists, has value to us. I think it has value. I will say that the science and opinion is all over the place on this. Mm. I, I don't think that's a settled question. What is, our, my anxi- what is our anxiety trying to tell us? That's not a settled question. You have neuroscientists who say anxiety is data. Anxiety is a symbol that a signal that you care. <laughs> um, you have people who say anxiety is a total liar and you should never listen to it. And then you have people like me who say, it's telling you something, but you don't always have to listen to it. I mean, anxiety, as you say, it's as old as humans ourselves. It is a primitive emotion and it evolved to keep us alive and we need it. 
we need anxiety. Unfortunately, our threat appraisal system, which is the physical manifestation of anxiety, is on overdrive these days for a lot of different reasons. And so I think we find ourselves feeling anxious more often than we ever did. And the reason for that is uncertainty. Humans hate uncertainty. And anxiety loves to fill the vacuum of uncertainty. So what is anxiety then? And I realize you're not a clinician, but you're somebody like this has been a part of your lived experience for like a lot of your life. And so many of us, you just described anxiety as effectively, it's something that happens when uncertainty is high. And when you think about how it affects so many people, well, I'm curious, let me just ask you as you, you know, when you're experiencing this, how does it affect you? What is it, you know, and, and also because you frame this as there's something that we can harness, use as fuel, but also there's something that um, is, creates difficulty. So in your experience, how does this land in your life? I mean, for me, my anxiety is triggered by two things. One, definitely a future fear uncertainty in an area that I am, frankly, raw in. I am very triggered by money. That is a childhood legacy. So when I am uncertain about money or I hear bad news about money or what I, or what I perceive to be bad financial news, my anxiety gets triggered because I feel threat. I don't feel control. And so I feel anxious. And what's really interesting is when we feel anxious, we have a habitual reaction. We might worry. A lot of us love to feel, love to fill the void with worry. If only I worry enough, it'll go away. We might use coping mechanisms. For me, I overwork. I just work, 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 work. I just work the anxiety away. Or maybe you might try to control things. You see this so often when you have a boss who's micromanaging. They're anxious. They're trying to fix something and their habit is micromanaging. So for me, I really have benefited from sort of classic cognitive behavioral therapy that says there is a stimulus and our, and our stimuli are different. What sets me off, Jonathan, doesn't set you off. Very personal. And we feel anxious and we have a response. And that alone is worth looking at and working on because when we, and, and you I've talked about this a million times, when we are more mindful in how we respond, we have more agency and we have the opportunity to hopefully be better, be kinder, both to others and ourselves. Mm. So you just talked about um, a couple of those responses and it seems like they fall into sort of like two categories, adaptive and functional or maladaptive and dysfunctional. Correct. And sometimes I almost feel like it's not entirely clear which is which. <laughs> Talk to me about sort of like the, the, the two different categories and maybe share some examples of what this looks like. Absolutely. Um, I, I, it's so funny. I mean, I, I, I never want to judge anyone's anxiety response, <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I think that sometimes in your life, what is adaptive might not be adaptive two years later in your life. There mm. are times when you're super anxious and working yourself like crazy might be adaptive for you at that moment. Running a marathon might be adaptive for you at that moment. And yet two years later, it's not good for you. So it changes. I think that coping mechanisms fall into two broad categories. We have thoughts and we have behaviors. 
So actions, right? So like a classic coping mechanism when we're anxious or we're triggered would be to drink alcohol, right? (laughs) Or to eat, right? To try to soothe ourselves. And classic thoughts that we might have when we're triggered might be, I'm a failure. This is all my fault. I don't deserve this. If I'm not perfect, it's all going to be my fault and people will judge me. If I get up on that stage, people will think that I don't belong there and I'll be shamed, right? So we sort of go to our greatest hits and sometimes we get stuck in thought traps and sometimes we have behaviors and usually we have both. Mm. I mean, it occurs to me also that um, not only might the same type of intervention be good or bad based on like the time of your life, but even in the intensity of, or the expression of it. So like you just brought up the example of I'm anxious, I'm freaked out. I don't know what the future holds, um, but I've got a job where I can, if I want to literally work all day, every day. And that's going to distract me <laughs> from, if, you know, if I have something to do, it's going to keep me more in the present moment of what I'm doing rather than spinning into the future or the past and fretting about what may or may not happen and, and spinning that into a doomsday scenario. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, so work could actually be this thing, which gets me mm-hmm. through a moment, maybe until you can get to a therapist or develop the skills underneath that, you know, like to, to deal with it in a more sustainable way. But at, but at a certain point, you also wonder, you know, do you hit a tipping point where you go from adaptive to maladaptive, where you go from, okay, so this is actually serving a positive role to now this is actually tipping me into extreme depletion and burnout. And then when I pile depletion and burnout on top of the fiber of anxiety, now I've actually put myself in a much deeper, darker hole that's going to be way harder to get out of. And I don't have my go-to of like basically overworking anymore. So you're kind of left in um, a really tough place. I mean, does that, do you see that? I, I, I Apparently half of Americans are in that place. When you mm. look at, at self-reported data and statistics, like we have nothing left to give. And it, it kind of makes sense physiologically too, when you think about it, if you're firing all of those hormones and all that stress constantly, which if you're anxious constantly, you are, it is exhausting. It's exhausting for your mind. It's exhausting for your body. We're not designed to be like that all the time. I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about burnout is it's my opinion that anxiety really drives a lot of burnout. Not not too much work or external stressors. I think that there are many of us who can handle external stressors and a lot of work and not feel burnt out. And there are many of us who feel anxious and put so much emotional value into the outcome of all those demands. And that's when we experience burnout. And so Again, it's different for anyone. I mean, I think I think to me, a classic example of something that might work for you until it doesn't is a lot of people exercise anxiety and, and we're told to do that, right? Like get outside, run, feel, you know, move your body. I have seen so many people and data supports this who kind of over-exercise and they sort of get almost, it becomes a compulsion and then their knee starts hurting and it's not good for them anymore. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about it, um, you also use the word triggers a couple of times now. 
I know you write about this in the book, Triggers and Tells. Mm-hmm. And for each person, well, I, tell me what you mean by the word triggers. So trigger is a is a word, I would say, in the field also that is sort of under debate. It's, a, it's an tr- old tr- word. It's a triggering word. <laughs> it's a triggering word. So you might also say activators or activating events. Okay. Stimuli. I mean, ultimately, a trigger is a, is a stimulus. It's something that provokes a response in us. I mean, I think a classic example at work, and I think something everyone can relate to, is that you get an email from someone and the, the sheer their name in the from field provokes a physical anxious reaction. You physically are like, oh my God, this is bad. I don't want this to happen. This is bad. This is bad. And you become anxious. Like you're triggered. You might be triggered by people. I think one of the most interesting things that I'm really, really fascinated is that by is that we get, we get, we get triggered by people. And when we're in situations like a negotiation, that person might be activating us in ways that we don't understand, but that we need to get in touch with to get the outcome we want. And so, um, as Mark Brackett at Yale says, we're triggered all the time and all the time. Mm. So the question is, again, um, not just what do we do with that, but also how do we, because I want to get to the, well, what do we do with it? You know, once we notice we're being triggered and it's leading to an anxiety response, there's some interesting tools and techniques that we can go to. But I think the, the even earlier question is, is there a skill also around just identifying when in fact that activation is happening? Like, is there something that we can do or that we can practice to help us understand, oh, okay, something's just shifted here. Um, And it's not just that I'm looking at the email or looking at the number coming in on my phone or, and, but actually in that moment, we're also almost zooming out and saying, something just changed. And I've just moved from like a peaceful state to feeling anxiety to like actually acknowledge the fact that I've just been activated in a way, which is potentially either constructive or destructive? I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example that is literally happening to me every day right now. I will be having a perfectly good day and then I'll go check LinkedIn or a news, my news feed and I'll see more layoffs. <laughs> and because we know money is very triggering for me and the sense and the, the feeling of potential loss, all of a sudden I'm anxious. I, I'll, it's like over a, a split second, just a headline. Nothing has changed in my life. I don't have any less money now that I read that headline, but my, my, my state, my internal state has changed. And that's really useful to know because I could just not check the news <laughs> that day <laughs> and maybe I wouldn't be triggered. Like that sounds like a trivial example, but I think it illustrates. And, and one of my favorite schools of psychology, ACT or Acceptance Commitment Therapy, you know, really asks you to work on understanding that, you know, words are just words. We, we assign such power to them. A headline is just words, but we have to understand what that headline's doing to us in order to be able to change our response. Mm-hmm. Doing to us, and I guess maybe doing for us. And that's where mm-hmm. we get into the argument that you're really making around anxiety, which is that, okay, so we all acknowledge the fact that like when we feel anxiety, our mind and our experience immediately goes to all the bad stuff, and which is fundamentally how we feel. You mm-hmm. know, it 
it triggers our, our neurology, our endocrinology, like our chemistry set inside of our body to make us feel physically uncomfortable, sometimes at the point of illness and psychologically uncomfortable. But when you make the argument that says, in, especially in a business context, in a work context, in a leadership context, this identical moment can also be doing something for us. Two questions. One, what is the four side? And two, how do we go from the two to four? <laughs> The two to four is the life's work, and we start it in the book, but I cannot finish it for you, but I encourage you to. So here's the four, and, and, I, and I really believe this to be true, and I have interviewed hundreds of people at this point. The four is twofold. The four is, say I'm a CEO, and money is my trigger, and I see that headline, and I start to think, gosh, you know, the macroeconomic signs are not great. I better call a meeting with my CFO. I know, yes, that money is a childhood issue for me and, you know, I'm working on that in therapy, but like, do I have a plan? Am I activating the right response or is my is this just my anxiety talking and I can just tell it, you know what? I get it. I get it. Money's a trigger for me. The other thing that you do when you know what makes you anxious as a leader is you build sustainability, truly. And this is good. This is just good practice, right? You build in supports for your recovery, for your own self. You build a good team, hopefully, who can tell you when it's your anxiety speaking and no, we have enough money in the bank. <laughs> Literally someone who could give you a chart and say, no, we have enough money in the bank. You build, hopefully, really much better communication skills. Because so much anxiety is created around bad communication and lack of communication when you think about it. And the leaders we love are the leaders who communicate really well. And when you know what you need from a communication standpoint, you are much better at setting that up for everyone. And so I think it gives you great power. It gives you self-awareness as a leader and it helps you create psychological safety as well. Mm. So I think it's, it's really painful and uncomfortable. But when you work through it, it is absolutely key to so many of the things we, we value in good leaders and also sustainable leaders who don't get burnt out as easily. So the way you describe it, I'm nodding along. And then where my mind is going is, I think it's probably agreed upon that one of the critical traits of great leadership is empathy. On the one hand, when you think about a leader who um, is moving through anxiety, using your language, travels with anxiety, you would say, well, they're suffering. It would make sense that their experience with repeated suffering through the, the, the mechanism of anxiety might in fact instill a sense of empathy in them so that when they see others on their team, in their organization, in the culture, moving through experience, they can pick up on it better. They can better understand what's happening and not just sympathize, but empathize and maybe engage with that person in a more nurturing and supportive way. So half of me is, is looking at that. The other half of me is thinking about my own experience with anxiety and thinking when I am in an anxiety spin state, nothing outside of that exists. So it's all, it's almost like you've got like this, this dual experience, whereas the, there's the potential for you really to, to show up as a more effective and engaged leader. But when you're in it, it's the exact opposite. And that's got to be really an interesting thing to navigate. I think you just hit on it 100%. Mental illness is very narcissistic. 
<laughs> right? I mean, uh, when you're when you're clinically depressed, when you're in an anxiety spin, it's all about you and how you feel. And when you're flooded with emotion, you're not giving anyone empathy. It's not possible. <laughs> so the key is to first get unflooded, right? And to try to get out of the spin. And and so this stuff isn't easy. <laughs> but I'm not saying the day that you're in the spin, you might have this skill. It might take years. It might take months. I interviewed a really prominent leader in Hollywood on my podcast, Jimmy Horowitz. He's the vice chairman of business affairs at NBC Universal. So like big job. And, you know, he was in charge of business deals for many years, never left the office, but really tried to be a fair operator, got clinically depressed. And he hid it for many months and he went through all the pain, all the pain, right? And got treatment and he got better. And he said that on the other side of it, it has helped him become so much more compassionate and create a more compassionate culture. It doesn't happen overnight. But when you've seen your soft underbelly and and been vulnerable, when you do the work, you're much more able, not just to be empathetic, but actually a journalist I spoke with the other day totally flipped my mind. She said, it's not just empathy more. She said, it's compassion. Empathy is feeling. Passion is actually taking steps to help. And that's a leader's job too. Mm-hmm. So when you think about it, it, the impact of potentially, the potential impact on anxiety on leadership, it, at least in two domains, it can function, again, not in the moment of sort of like severe expression of anxiety, but like in navigating through it um, and how it changes you in a more persistent basis, it can lead to greater empathy, which bundled with a, an impulse towards helping and service can lead to compassion and a much better relationship with your team. And then folding back to earlier in the conversation, the level of vigilance that it sometimes creates or the spin, one of the responses might be to really think through what might happen and rather than just spin it in your head, operationalize that into plans and systems and structures that would in fact serve a really positive and constructive purpose and also probably let you move out of the spin more easily realizing like, oh no, I've actually got that covered. And maybe like for the whole team, they all know we've got that covered because we've been there mm-hmm. and you're helping them move through that as well. One of the most prominent neuroscientists who is looking at what she calls good anxiety, (laughs) Dr. Wendy Suzuki, you know, says you turn that anxiety spin, that worry list into a plan, into a to-do list, right? And um, there are very simple ways to do this. You know, one of the things that I recommend when you're feeling an anxiety spin is to look at your calendar, go through your calendar hour by hour and rehearse rehearse that meeting you're going to have, rehearse that report you're going to send in, like give yourself the sense of a framework and control what you can control. Because let's face it, like there's so much we can't control, but it's good for our brains and it's good for our work when we learn how to put frameworks around the anxiety and turn it into something more productive. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And I love that sort of like the the notion of rehearsing. Oh, yeah. Especially if you have social anxiety. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> you also brought up something earlier, 
which I think is just, it's been so powerful in my life. It's the notion of mindfulness. And I know when you bring that up in a business context, it's gained so much more traction these days. And and most people have some sense of what it is or what it is and the fact that it's both a practice and a way of being. But I feel like still in the world of work, in the world of business, I'm not entirely sure if it's really moved beyond lip service at scale, beyond just saying, yeah, we know there's this thing called mindfulness. And of course, it'll help with this, that, and the other thing. And there's a whole bunch of research on it. In the context of anxiety, um, especially anxiety in work, anxiety when you're leading, anxiety when you're just trying to be human. <laughs> mindfulness seems to me to be such a critical, it's almost like the meta skill when trying to actually harness it or transform the way you experience it. Is that your sense also? And and also I'm curious, what's your take on whether it's legitimately being accepted and brought into this world of work that we like do all day? Mindfulness is the meta skill. And, and and I don't even mean, you know, that you need to do mindfulness meditation or you need to have a long practice. I mean literally that moment between your stimulus and your response saying, is this working for me, right? (laughs) Do I want to go for that for me? Do I want to have that drink because I'm really freaked out because I'm going to feel bad? That's mindfulness. That's mindfulness. So I don't see how we can be mindful in a world where our entire lives are mediated by digital communication that encourages everything that's the opposite of mindfulness. I mean, I think to me, that's the struggle. And I think that that's I think many leaders and many companies have really good intentions, but unfortunately, I think the byproduct of this world that we live in is really destructive to mindfulness. I don't know what you think. I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I I think left to use digital connectivity the way it's offered to us and the way that we're sort of brought into asynchronous, often non-visual communications where people are literally prattling off anything that's on their mind at any time during the day or night and seven days a week, <laughs> there's been an expectation of we're always on it all the time. And there's it's so much easier to be flooded with other people's expectations, requests, realistic or not, demands, realistic or not, um, <laughs> desires, realistic or not. I mean, a reply all thread is basically just our anxiety pinging back and forth. Yeah, totally. <laughs> A hundred percent. You know, I think also, so so I think it is the default mode for a lot of technology and a lot of the way that we communicate in a business context now, I think it is ripe for exacerbating anxiety. That said, I think we can also subvert technology to use it as a tool to enhance mindfulness. Like I have, there's a fun thing that I love to invite people to do. Basically like you take it, everyone has a device and on that device, whether you know it or not, like there's an app that actually is a time clock or an alarm clock or a timer and you can set timers. And like, what if you actually set a vibe alert, which was distinct where you knew what it meant, like to go off every half an hour for like for 12 waking hours during your day. And every time you feel it in your pocket, it's a cue for you to just pause, like, Pay attention, look around, pay attention to your internal experience, acknowledge it, take a deep breath and just Mm -hmm. get present. So I I agree. I think the default state for so much technology, especially connective technology, is actually to pull us away from mindfulness. But I think we can actually, we can reclaim it as a tool to bring us back to mindfulness, but we have to be so much more intentional about it. What's your take? We have to be intentional. I mean, it takes so much, it takes so much discipline, I think. And um, 
you know, when you're in an anxious state, again, that response, getting to inbox zero feels like productive work, right? It's that, it's that defense against bad things happening. And I get it. I, I do that. And so I think that we just have to start talking about it. I love the, I mean, I, my shoulders relaxed instantly when you talked about checking in every half an hour. I absolutely love that. I mean, one of the things that I, I have been challenging myself to do is, you know, I look at my smartphone, that's my baby, eight years ago. Um, and I think about how much of my identity is locked in this phone, my ego. And I just practice thinking, what if your identity and ego were not connected? 90% to this stupid device. Yeah. That's powerful. I have regular fantasies about going back to an old flip phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I may do that at some point. My team might not be happy about it, but <laughs> still might happen. We'll see. As we start to come full circle in our conversation, zooming the lens out, if we assume that so many of us experience anxiety, so much of it can be activated or triggered in the context of where life meets work and show up at work. And there are things and tools and strategies that we can do to recognize when it's happening and and try and navigate it. Um, so you use this phrase, anxious achiever. What does success look like if as an anxious achiever? Oh, I mean, I think unchecked success looks like an impossible standard that you keep running towards, right? I mean, that's the danger. So success for an anxious achiever is actually managing that knife's edge between the point where your anxiety is a huge drag on you and is really, really, really damaging your mental health. And it is a traveler. It's data. And sometimes you use that anxious energy to excel. Mm. It is a, a as, and as you describe, it's a lifetime practice. It is a life's work. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.